Well, good day, fellowship. It's great to have you with us as we continue in God's Word. We are in this series called Behind and Before, and we're talking about uh, the book of Exodus and how God delivered his people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt and into the promised land where he was going to make them a light unto the nations. And uh, this week, we are going to be talking about that step that happened after Moses and the burning bush, where Moses finally said yes to the Lord, and the Lord brought his long-lost brother Aaron into his life, and they confronted Pharaoh. And so they go and they confront Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to I'm not going to let you guys go. Uh, and, and therefore, he made it even more difficult for the children of, of Israel. Matter, matter of fact, they couldn't, they had to go harvest their own straw for the bricks that they were building in slavery. And so it says that Moses goes back to the people and tells them that God is going to deliver them out again. And it says this in Exodus 6, verse 9. He says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I want to talk to you about those two phrases right there. Broken spirit, harsh slavery. That was their, that was a, a summary of their lives. They're, they were broken. In other words, they didn't want to listen to Moses anymore and they didn't want to hear about God because they were so beaten down. They were so crushed by this bully of Egypt over them. And the harshness of their lives was such that they couldn't, they just blocked, tried to block God and Moses out. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been broken in spirit? That's one of those things that as, um, as Cheryl and I were raising our three boys, we really never wanted to do. We never wanted to break their spirit. We wanted to correct and maybe discipline them towards a better direction, but I never wanted to just lose it on them so that I would break their spirits because that's a very difficult place to move a child out of, just shrouded by guilt and shame and frustration and it causes them in some way to fight for their own, own rights and, and you, you know, overthrow authority over them. But, but Israel was at this place. And their story, I'm finding, is not a whole lot different than our story. Have you guys just been looking at the whole concept of mental illness in our culture and mental illness even inside of our church? With so much disruption, so much loss, so many expectations that were dashed, that the hearts, our hearts have grown sick, and we have, we have kind of shrunk into ourselves. This is a very common thing. The story behind you is a story that when God comes and shares with you what he has in mind for you, or when he calls you out of where you're at, you just go, no, it must not be me, or not now. I mean, mental illness is something that's right in our presence. 50% of everyone in our population has gone through some stage of mental illness in the past 24 months. It's here. And we want to, as a church, provide a safe place for those who are struggling through mental illness so that they aren't crushed, so they aren't broken in spirit that they can't hear or respond to the voice of God in their lives. And so here's what we're doing. I'm joining in with other churches in our community as we as pastors have prayed about the mental state of Christians in Topeka. 
is we're going to be providing some resources for you and some referrals to you that if should you ever need professional counseling, should you ever need a book to read on something that you or a family member or a friend is going through, that we're equipping you to be ministers as you navigate with people in, with mental illness. This is nothing, folks, in the same way that if you broke your arm, I would have compassion on you and want to get you help. It, mental illness is the same thing. I know in the church we have kind of just said, pray, read some passages, and call me in the morning kind of thing. And this is very real for us. And it's very real in your lives. And we want to help you navigate that. So in upcoming weeks as we go through this, we'll be providing some more resources and referrals. And by the way, just as I have you here, whether here or online, if you know of some resources, shoot me an email with some of those because we're curating a whole bunch of the best of the best resources that we can provide for people. If you know of a Christian counselor, if you are a Christian counselor, let us know your name. We probably already have it, but if we don't, we always are putting this list together and letting people know that they can get help that they need. This story behind you is a story behind Israel, and it's one that keeps us from hearing the voice of God. And so today, God is going to deliver his people out of Egypt. Not today, but today in the passage. And they are going to celebrate that deliverance with this whole celebration of Passover. And in celebrating the Passover, they're going to talk about the deliverance of the hand of God, the mighty outstretched arm of God that fought for his people and redeemed them out of Egypt into the place and into the people that he wanted them to be. Now, this Passover, this Passover picture, I kind of grew up with Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. Look at his rich, luxurious hair, you know, but it was probably more of of a rendering like this. The Israelites were called to go into their homes, and after they had sacrificed a Passover lamb and put the blood over the lintel and the doorposts, and they were to eat and tell this story that God will do this tonight and wait on the deliverance of God. I'll come back to this picture, but I'll give you four words to describe Passover. The first word is confrontation. Let's not forget this. It's, this took place at a real time in a real place with a real group of people called the Israelites with a superpower and a mega leader at that time named Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was keeping them in, under slavery. And this would be a confrontation. God's confrontation of a Pharaoh who said, no way, I'm not sending you. And so let's look at how it was a confrontation. Remember, God had told Moses, this is going to happen. He said, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So Moses was kind of trained by God in the school, in the school of God to this is what you do and this is what you'll say. Look what what God tells him you will say. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I'll remind you, this is is in Exodus 4. This is before anything ever happens. God is preparing Moses. It's going to be difficult. Did you ever realize that sometimes following God is going to be more difficult than not following him? 
that you're going to face more resistance by standing for truth and goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God than you would ever get if you just kind of blended into the culture and just kind of let things go. Yes, it's always going to be because God is confronting wickedness with righteousness. And so he's going to do that. But look at what he calls Israel, his firstborn son. You know, when God would tell Moses, I have seen them, I have heard their cries, I remembered my covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I, I, will, I know them and I will act. Here's God acting. He's confronting this bully that had persecuted and slaughtered these, these Jewish boys for years to try to control their population was throwing these little newborn infant boys into the Nile. God said, I have enough. I had enough. Look what you're doing to my firstborn son. If you don't let them go, I'll kill your firstborn son. So Moses goes and appears before the most powerful man on earth. Moses, this humble shepherd, who was uh, convicted of murder as a younger guy and now at 80 years old goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. The Lord said, thus says the Lord to Pharaoh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But look what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. (laughs) In other words, no way, no way. I don't know which God you're talking about. Forget it, forget it. So Moses says, the Lord says to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Isn't that interesting? I would expect God to say, I'm going to take you and I'm going to send you out and I'm going to, with a strong hand, deliver you. But here he's saying, Pharaoh's going to actually, I am going to confront him so much that he says, go, get out of here with all of his energy and with all his power, leave. Could you imagine hearing this before it even happened? But it was a long time after this that it finally happened. Because over the next Over the next several chapters in the book of Exodus, we see this pattern. God confronting Egypt. God confronting Pharaoh. In each of these ten plagues, there was a God associated with with, uh, Egypt. They were worshiping their gods like they worshiped the Nile God, the God of that river of the Nile. And what does God do? He turns it into blood. They worshiped Ra, the sun god, which kind of just just was shining into that. They worshiped the sun and God struck the world with darkness on one of his. And throughout each one of these 10 plagues, the first seven, each time Pharaoh was given an opportunity because it, it was almost like it was on playback over and over. Let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go. And with each one, Pharaoh said, no, no, no. I mean, you see this picture of a hardening heart. It says in seven of these In seven of these plagues, it said this about Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Do you remember how we constructed that view of faith? That definition of faith? Faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. Here you have the opposite. Faith is hearing God's word and saying, forget it. I don't want nothing of it. That's a picture of a hardened heart. 
And we see this kind of as a position of Pharaoh that just kept getting more and more stubborn and hardened. Matter of fact, all of his counselors said, don't you realize our economy has tanked? I mean, in those days, they didn't print money. <laughs> it's not like economic easing that we have here in the U.S. They, their economy was tanking because of all these different plagues that were hitting them. And then it says this in the last three plagues. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go. That's really strong, isn't it? Until you read all the passages up to this and all the chances that God spoke just with his word to start and then with his mighty works after Pharaoh, I mean it, I mean it, I want you to let my people go. And there came a point where God just gave him over to his rejection. It's like Paul would write in Romans 1 that God created everything and instead of people worshiping God, they worship the creation, not the creator. And God then gives them over. You want life without me? Okay, here's more of life without me. And they, that's a hardened heart towards God and God takes us to a point. Now here we see it where no matter what he does or says, our hearts are hardened. We don't want him. I mean, I know very few of us would wake up in the morning and say, God, give me a life without you. <laughs> Most are saying, God, give me a life with you, where I recognize you and respond to you. That's a heart that's soft towards him and open towards him. But when we want life without him, he doesn't pull us kicking and screaming. He sets us to, okay, you want life without me? Here's life without you. Help me. That's Pharaoh's heart. So God was confronting it. And so this final plague was the slaying of the firstborn child from the highest to the lowest. Look what it says in Exodus chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. In other words, from the throne to the prisons and all the firstborn of the livestock. It was a night like none other on this earth. So much death, so much destruction. And if you just open up your Bible and read, there you go, wow, God doesn't look like he has grace, but my goodness, look at all the times he gave Pharaoh. Repent, repent. Though you did this to my firstborn son, I am a God of justice. I will speak for them. I will act for them. God was confronting. So that it got to a point where Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron by night and says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. Two things I want to call out on this. As you have said, <laughs> he finally was confronted to the place where, as you told me over and over, go do. He's obeying the voice of the Lord. And then just be careful here because it says, bless me also. It's basically, he's basically saying, stop this. Stop this death. Stop this confrontation. Because in just a few lines later, he regrets that he lets them go and he chases after them and he's destroyed in the Red Sea. So this is a picture of the confrontation of God on wickedness and evil and injustice. And I would just say this. You can say all you want about the image that we construct about God, but remember, he is not just a God of love. He is a God of righteousness and truth and holiness. And he does not compromise either of those to love us and to be in relationship with us.
And we're going to see this second word. It's not only a confrontation, it's redemption. It's redemption because the people of Israel, if they wouldn't have put the blood over, blood of that Passover lamb over their, their, the lintel of their doorposts and on the doorposts of their entry, they would have been struck dead. It wasn't that they were more powerful or mighty than Egypt or they were better than anyone or they lived better than the Egyptians. It was simply because they had the covering that God had called them to put over them, the blood of that Passover lamb. Passover would start their whole new year. And even today, there's some Jewish rabbis who say, happy Passover, because as signaling, as we would say, happy new year. This would be the new month, the first month of the year. And on the 10th day of that month, they were to select a Passover lamb. And on the 14th day, they would kill that lamb and they would take that blood. They were asked to do this with the blood. Take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which... They eat it. So they were to kill it and get it ready and, and prepare it. And they were to put, put that blood over the lintel and on the two doorposts. And they were to go inside and they were to eat that. Now, if you had a lamb, which was to be a, under a year old and a male without blemish, and they were to eat the whole thing and not have any leftovers. So if you had a lamb that could have another family, if you were a smaller family, you would invite another family into your house and you would celebrate the Passover. And it says this, that the blood will, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover from. He pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. This is redemption. This is that the the Israelites were now being trained. Where do they seek shelter from the mighty hand of the Lord? They seek it through the sacrifice. The sacrifice of the lamb. God does not compromise his holiness. He actually judges that lamb. His judgment that could be on us went fell to that lamb. And that lamb's blood covered them so that by being in that home, they were protected. And they were called not just to do this that one night. They were called to continue to do this throughout their history. And they were called to relate this story to their family and their children who weren't part of the original deliverance. Every year on Passover, the Jews celebrate this, and and they're given the instruction, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, mom, dad, what's this all about? Why are we doing this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptian, but spared our houses. And the people bowed in their heads and worshiped on that night. Can you imagine what that was like? Again, just an artist's rendering of um, putting that blood on the doorpost and the lintel, closing the door, eating together, and thinking, what's going to happen that night? God said, I'm going to deliver you on this night, not just this night that I feed you, but I want you to be ready to go on this very night so that when Pharaoh says, go, you can go. So he asked them to actually be dressed for traveling as they ate this meal 
so that they wouldn't have much of a preparation time to get ready. If we were to eat this meal today, we would eat it with our winter jackets and maybe a hat because that would celebrate that if God delivered us at this moment, we would be ready. So it's a responsiveness there to the redemption of God. The Passover's a redemption. Him purchasing them out from their sin, from their slavery, to be the people that would shine the glory and the beauty of God to the rest of the world. But it was also liberation, right? They would be set free. They would be set free. It says in Exodus twelve fifty one, and on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Psalm 78, which worships God and his deliverance and his liberation of them, says this about God. It says, Then God led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Here, that God is the shepherd. He's shown liberating them. Now, I will tell you that we kind of view liberation as power to live or the the freedom to live however we want to, but that wasn't the liberation that God was calling his people into. He didn't just go, okay, now, just do whatever you want out in the wilderness. No, in order to live in the wilderness, they had to stay together and they had to stay focused on him. So that's why you see in the wording of this narrative that they were once slaves, but now they're servants of God, okay? So that that's where the liberation came. You are free to serve God and you will find God being a God of love who doesn't abuse you God being a God of justice who doesn't, doesn't um, uh, commit sin against you and do, does things that destroy you, that breaks your spirit, but he's the one who gives life. It was the liberation of their lives. And finally, it was consecration. That's a good Scrabble word, by the way. Um, it has two C's, so you get good points with that. But what does it mean? When you consecrate something, What you're doing is you're setting it apart for God's purposes. And so when you set something apart for God to use, then you take it out of what its old uses were. And God is saying, you were once slaves. You were once getting beaten. You were once, life, you were broken in spirit. You were in harsh slavery. But now I have consecrated you. I've taken you out of that and I've made you a new purpose. You will shine through your nation and be a light to all the other nations. I am consecrating you for my purposes. I know we could use the word dedication, but this one is a little bit more specific because it's God setting you apart for his holy purposes. It says that when they were uh, rescued that night or delivered that night, that the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And God also provided with them all the all the goods from the Egyptians because Moses told the people on this night that I deliver you, I want you to ask people where you serve in their homes, ask them for things and they will give it to you. And, And they did that in such great amount that it says, and so the Israelites plundered the Egyptians without swinging a sword. They simply asked for it. People gave it to them. And one of the things that God told them that they were consecrated with was with was, was what's called unleavened bread. And 
on that night, this rescue happened so quickly that any type of yeast in the bread wouldn't affect the bread. It was unleavened, unaffected by yeast. And so they said, take out all the yeast from your homes because we're going to go back to that memory, that memory where God delivered us so quickly that the bread didn't even have a chance to rise. And in those days, you baked bread every day. You didn't go to the grocery store and buy bread that lasts two weeks until mold grows in it and they have to throw it out. This is something you did every day. That's where we get this concept of daily bread. And so they took enough bread that was ready but unleavened without any yeast. And that was a picture that God had consecrated himself to them. Here it says in verse 34, So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. Can you just see this whole picture? And then he gave them this command. For seven days, it is, leaven is not to be found in your houses. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. And so if you have a Jewish friend or you yourself are Jewish and you've celebrated the Passover, seven days after the Passover is also the feast of the unleavened bread. All the yeast is to be taken from your home, your toasters to be cleaned out from all the yeast in it to, so that you show and consecrate yourself, consecrate yourself to the purposes of God. Shortly after the deliverance, God would have them consecrate their firstborn sons. But here he's consecrating them in, with, using bread. And he's showing us that you, Israel is my firstborn child. They are consecrated for me. And so the exodus happens. God's people are delivered. And this Passover would be a continual memorial until forever, a a memorial to be celebrated on this night of the first month of the Jewish calendar, the 10th day and the 14th night. This is to be the 10th day. the, The lamb would be selected and the 14th day, the blood would be put on. The, the doorpost, just to remind them over and over and over that that night God passed over them as he confronted Egypt and God delivered his people. I want you to think about that word redemption and think about, remember where we started? That we started at a place where they had a broken spirit and they were crushed by harsh slavery. And here, Just a few months later, God is delivering them away. And they're walking with unleavened bread and the wealth of Egypt out into the middle of nowhere, where we'll continue to follow them for next week. So what does it look like for you today who might be broken in spirit and enslaved by the pattern of sin in our lives? Well, this Passover is something that we're called to see in Jesus Jesus is our Passover lamb. Did you realize that when John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, saw the grown Jesus coming before him and everyone saying, here here he comes, he goes, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because Jesus would be that lamb. He would be that lamb for us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples and he was reinterpreting the Passover meal to be celebrated on all those who are drawn out of sin and into a relationship with him. The ecclesia, the called out ones called the church. And so we're to celebrate this until he returns, where we remember 
what the person and the work of Jesus means for us. And so just as the Jews were called to celebrate their deliverance out of Egypt, we are to celebrate our deliverance out of sin and into salvation through Christ. So that's what we're going to do now. When we approach this, I'm going to ask you to just hold on to the elements right now as we go through this. This is our Passover. And so this on the first day of the week is a celebration of the salvation that we have in Christ. One of the things that we're called to do as we approach this meal, this feast, and albeit it's a small feast right now, but it's a remembrance. One of the things we're to do is to examine our hearts, to consecrate our lives, to realign our lives, recalibrate our lives to the person and the work of Christ. Paul warns us, as he warned the church in Corinth, who was abusing this meal, the rich were sitting with the rich, the poor were with the poor, different races were at different tables, and it divided them. And so he corrects them with this instruction, and he says, no, no, don't eat this bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, because you'll be guilty of desecrating that which God had consecrated for us to remember that. And then he would say, so let each person or a person examine himself so, and so then eat the bread and drink the cup. I want to do that right now. I want to examine our hearts. And as we examine our hearts, I want you just to think through this grid with me. Is there anything in your heart that looks more like Pharaoh? Do you have a heart in any way in obedience to who God is and what he's calling you to, who he's calling you to be or do that you've just hardened? Now is a time, just like every plague confronted Pharaoh, now is a time to remember that you're not going to win. God's going to win. And so the better posture for all of us is to be humble and open and available for God to move in our lives. Examine your heart with your relationship with God. Examine your heart in your understanding of yourself. I find, depending on the day, I either need to be humbled or I need to be lifted up, encouraged. When I fail, when I fall short, I heap tons of guilt and shame on my life. And I need to examine my heart on who it's trusting in. If I trust in myself and I fail myself and I fall short of my own expectation, it feels hopeless and it shows me, it's a little circuit breaker that goes out. Why am I so worried about this? Why am I so crushed by a comment or a statement someone said to me? It's because I'm finding my hope in myself when I ultimately need to find my hope in Christ. And when I have my best success and I'm feeling really significant, I need to step down from myself and realize my life is not the end. I can't be at the center of my life. It has to be Jesus. Examine your heart towards Jesus. And then finally, examine your relationship with others. There might be someone, a boss, a neighbor, a family member, a spouse, that you just right now, when you think of them, you're just listing their sins against you. And you're just angry and you're bitter. I can tell you, Jesus came to bear our sin and their sins so you don't have to bear it. That actually breaks the power of bitterness and anger in your life so you can forgive them. And they're much better in his hands than your hands of revenge. 
They're much better in, in being called by his voice than you calling them out and tearing them down. So set them free. Examine your heart and your relationship. I would even say that if you're seated next to someone that you're at odds with, maybe you fought on the way to church today. I've done it. Hi, I'm Joe, and I fought on the way to church and on home from the church some, some days. Just nudge them and say, I'm sorry. That might be something that you just are free of any conflict between them so you can clearly see Jesus as we celebrate this. Consecrate your life to him. Secondly, relate. Relate this. When we take this, we relate this story as in the same way that the parents of, of the, the Jewish parents were to explain the Passover to their children in the celebration of Passover. Us Christian parents need to relate this to our families. We relate the gospel to each other when we celebrate this. I remember, I've been going to church all my life, and I, when I was three years old, I would sit uh, on a Sunday night in my Baptist church, and my, uh, the, the communion supplies would go by, and I just thought, I thought, oh, the church is giving out snacks. So I would reach in, and I grabbed a whole hand of those wafers, and I was ready to feast, and then my dad's hand would grab it like this, and I'd drop it in, you know, back it down, and he goes, not for you yet, not for you yet. Um, but it begged the question, what are they doing? What are we doing? What are you doing when you're eating this? It gave my dad an opportunity, my mom and dad, to share. This is a picture of what Christ has done for us. We believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died on a cross for our sins, that he rose again on the third day. We believe that by celebrating this together, we tell each other this story of Jesus and we practice our faith together. And we remind him, I believe I believe in Jesus. I've trusted in him. We relate it to each other. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Would you take the bread with me? And we'll relate this together. So just hold it in your hand right now as I share the story of what Christ has done. Paul says that he received from the Lord and he also delivers it to us. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. That Passover meal he was celebrating, he was representing this picture of bread. He says, this is, remember he had said earlier in his ministry, I'm the bread of life, right? Whoever feeds on me will have eternal life. That's that whole picture. We'll never go hungry when we feast on Christ. This is a reminder that God became flesh for us. And he lived a perfect life, none that any of us could live. He died a final death. We don't need another Passover lamb because the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world was nailed to a cross and his blood covers us from our sins. So Jesus said this. The night uh, he had took the bread and when he had given thanks, would you just thank him right now for living and dying and rising for you? Thank him. And after you thank him, break the bread. Because he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember him and take the bread. And now take the cup. 
Most likely, the cup that Jesus took in his celebration of the Passover was the cup of blessing, which would talk about the promise of God in the people of Israel. And so Jesus, on that night when he was betrayed, he, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what he meant by that, he's saying, I forged a new covenant just as the Passover lamb was my promise that I would pass over you. This is my promise. Whoever believes in me will never die. And so when we take this, we recognize we have a new promise from God. It's not dependent on our works any more than the children of Israel saved themselves out of Egypt. We can't save ourselves out of sin. We need the person in the work of Jesus. We needed him to die for us and through that forge a new promise, a new covenant with God, an irrevocable covenant promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe that, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of him. Do you see what we just did? We just communicated to each other. We just related to ourselves. We may come from different backgrounds. We may have differences between us. But what we share is the person and the work of Jesus. And that is a good thing to do. That unifies us around Jesus. That shows us what's the most important things to live and die for are in this world. And that is a relationship with God, a love for him, a love for each other. This keeps us oriented towards a God-centered, Christ-dependent life. And so what I want to do now is to celebrate that. I'm going to ask our band to come back up. And that's the, the third thing we're to do with this meal, this Passover meal with Christ at the center. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death because his death means our life. And so would you stand with me as we close our time in music?